Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Shyla Catherine, the author of Beyond Distraction, Five Practical Ways to Focus the Mind. Shyla is a renowned meditation teacher and author of three books on concentration and insight meditation. Shyla is the principal teacher for Insight Meditation South Bay, a center for mindfulness, compassion, and wisdom in Silicon Valley, California. In the conversation, we discuss focus and concentration, the difference between content of thoughts and the process of thinking. We explore five practical ways to work with your mind, the wisdom of contemplation, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book and hope you do as well. You can learn more about Shyla's work at shylacatherine.com. Now, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Shyla Catherine. Well, Shyla Catherine, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Well, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. As we were talking about before we hit record, I've been looking forward to this one. And we're going to be talking about your wonderful book, Beyond Distraction, Five Practical Ways to Focus the Mind. But before we get into the book, this is a show about wisdom, but it's also about the search, this search for wisdom. And I was reading in your bio how you have over nine years of silent retreat experience. So I'm, I'm curious how you make sense of, of the search and maybe how this deep interest in things like focus and concentration all started. Well, when I think of wisdom, I actually think of something fairly pragmatic. And I associate wisdom with the capacity to meet life without delusion meet life without attachments, meet life without the distortions that fix our attention in such a way that we actually are not seeing clearly. So I don't think of wisdom as being a particular intellectual understanding of something or a socially skillful meeting of it. But I look at wisdom, it, to me, wisdom correlates with the capacity to meet experience clearly and without attachment. So that means without attachment to the things that are happening, like trying to possess experience or trying to control what's out there in the world, but maybe more fundamentally without the attachment to the particular stories we have about our own identities. And so it's it's practical. It's something that is practiced. It's practiced in daily life, moment by moment. But it's pretty hard to stay clear in, in daily life if we don't have some deeper experience, some refuge of silence, some uh, discipline that allows us to go get quiet, go deep, look carefully at experience. And so we do that through daily meditation practice and through periodic retreat practice. So we might go into retreats for short periods, one day, two days, a week, ten days, or long periods, like months at a time. And I've, I've loved retreat practice from my very first retreat when I was uh, fairly young. I started meditating when I was 17 and encountered Buddhism and uh, my first silent 10-day retreat a couple of years later. And I just loved it. And so when we love something, when we feel like it, <laughs> it touches something that we've been seeking and wanting and yearning for, uh, we keep going back. Even It doesn't matter if it's easy, doesn't matter if it's hard, doesn't matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant, luxurious and comfortable or really quite difficult conditions. Um, when it touches something deep, we, we, we keep pursuing it. And I feel like that's been the guiding um, kind of 
approach to my life. I loved the Buddhist practice, I loved the Dharma, and I especially loved the meditative life. So I looked for opportunities wherever I could find them. And sometimes they were, very often actually, they were just in Western meditation retreats of various kinds. And I also spent quite a number of years practicing in Asia and stayed in monasteries in Thailand and practiced also in in silence in India. So there was a kind of, uh, I was blessed with many opportunities to explore the meditative life. Well, I love that. And I, I greatly appreciate you sharing a bit of that background. If you had to pinpoint it down to one or two things, what is it that you love about the retreat experience? You know, it's more than a holiday from all the difficult things that one endures in daily life, what with work and family and having to deal with people. <laughs> it's much more than that. Uh, because uh, we, when we're sitting in silence, we meet our minds just as they are. And we have to see the ways that sometimes we, we think in ways and we um, have acted in ways that are causing suffering, that cause mm. a, a confusion, a distortion, a restlessness, a discontent. And I find that extremely empowering to see the ways, the habit, the ways that the habits of my own mind distort my experience of life. And mm. with that, I, I, I really aspire very strongly to the realization of what's, what we might call awakening or the realization of Nibbana in Buddhism. And that correlates with the purification of mind, a complete ending of the defilements and all of the, the harmful states that are rooted in greed, hate, and delusion. So it, it, it wasn't difficult for me to feel an ease in committing to such a beautiful and uh, just wholesome, beautiful path that purifies the mind of these distorting forces, these harmful forces. So it kind of cleans up our own act um, in terms of our, our, our actions. And, and much of the action we work with in meditation is the action of the mind the way that we think, uh, because mm -hmm. we're, we're mostly sitting, you know, doing meditation. It's pretty hard to, to do, you know, harmful physical action while you're meditating. Uh, but you have to watch what the mind is doing. And sometimes the mind is ruminating in a way that is harmful. The mind is entertaining thoughts that are rooted in, in greed or, or hate. The mind is, is perpetuating an orientation to experience that keeps putting self in the middle of the universe. Oh, this is important to me. This is for my advantage, my disadvantage. All this selfishness, this centering of I, me, and mine becomes a distorting force that perpetuates discontent and craving and clinging. It perpetuates mm. suffering. So meditation, although we sit quietly, apparently doing nothing, what we are doing is profound because we are meeting the mind and the subtle habits of mind and seeing them in a, um, in a way, sort of for the purpose of freeing the mind from those defilements. So we're, we're, we're purifying the mind. We're, we're, we're cleaning the mind. And that experience of a pure, clean mind is easily concentrated. Hmm. And I started to realize fairly early in my practice how wonderful concentration actually is. It's a pleasant state. In fact, it's deeply blissful. Far more pleasant than, um, than states, you know, pleasures of the senses. The, the mind that is concentrated is just imbued with a profound and very subtle kinds of pleasure, joy, and happiness. And also such subtle happiness that we would call it equanimity rather than pleasure. And it's so mm. deeply peaceful that it is, without question, superior to, to any sensory experience. 
And so there's certainly an attraction to it in that sense. <laughs> Why would somebody want a coarse pleasure when you can have a more refined one just by sitting quietly? It's a pretty profound discovery that through letting go and simplicity, a release, renunciation, and just like meeting your mind as it is, you can experience far greater happiness than what's available through the best seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching um, experiences. So early on in my practice, I discovered how blissful meditation was and wanted to orient to that. And I've, I've practiced a variety of approaches, mostly in terms of in the range of mindfulness practices and insight meditation practices. That's sort of the, the primary thrust. But somewhere along the way, I wanted to develop a deeper concentration. And so I um, entered into even longer retreats with the intention of cultivating particular kinds of concentration where the mind is absorbed with a mental object. And in the Theravada Buddhist practices, uh, these are called the jhanas, the four jhanas, these absorptive states of concentration. So I spent quite a bit of time developing those that approach to practice with a variety of meditation objects. And my first two books were oriented to um, develop those practices along with applying the concentrated mind to insight. But I think a, a, a strong feature of my first two books, especially Focused and Fearless, and also Wisdom Wide and Deep, um, emphasizes the deepening of concentration, and in particular, the absorptive states of jhana. Now, my third book, which is the one that you had wanted to talk primarily about, um, is is doesn't mention jhana much at all. I, I'm not sure if I even use the word. Maybe I do a couple of times, but it's certainly not the emphasis of the book. But my interest in working more closely with those habitual thoughts came uh, relates very strongly to my interest in concentration. Because really, what are the hindrances to concentration? It's mostly just restless thinking. Most of the other hindrances a meditator will kind of deal with fairly quickly. But we still have the mind that keeps reaching for something more. Something's got to be more interesting than this. We're trying to, to, to entertain ourselves or keep reaffirming our individual existence. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm feeling this. And so we, we, make, we make stories about things. We make comments on experiences. We even distort present experiences by commenting on the present experiences. And so having taught uh, deep concentration and jhana retreats for a couple of decades now, um, I keep seeing not only in my own experience, but in that of students, that this hindrance of restlessness and the way, the skills that we develop to work with habitual thought patterns are really the key to being able to focus the mind and experience concentration. So although this third book really doesn't deal with jhana at all, it's my interest is in the same kind of um, uh, framework. Like, what are the forces of our own mind, the actions of our own mind, that keep causing us trouble and prevent mm -hmm. us from experiencing the deep peace of release? And how can we learn to use our minds um, in a way that leads to happiness Awakening, peace. Well, that is a beautiful introduction into the book, Shyla. I'm very much interested in the topic, and I think many of the listeners will be as well. We've explored quite a few different wisdom traditions here on the podcast, and many of these traditions speak of a tranquility of mind as as the goal, but seldom do you find the practical strategies that that you talk about here. So I'm excited to to get into these five strategies that you write about. But one question before we before we get into strategy 1 is you write in the book a meditative exploration of mind depends upon clearly distinguishing between the content of your thoughts and the process of thinking. 
Could you say more about content and, and process before we get into the strategies? Sure, because this is actually really important. And even just understanding this resolves issues with most thoughts. <laughs> There's only a few pesky ones that um, that have to that where we actually need the full arsenal of five strategies. Um, many thoughts we get entangled in because we don't recognize that they're a thought. We're so enamored with the story, it's like being um, caught up in a movie or a, a, some kind of a drama, and we take it to be reality. So the first um, major you know, step forward in this process is to be mindful of a thought as a thought. And a thought is not a static thing. It's a process, a dynamic process of thinking. It's a mental activity. So instead of getting lost in the content or the story, we now become mindful of the activity that is occurring. Thinking is happening. And this changes the entire framework of how we work with the mind. If we're looking at the story, there's there's much that we can learn and grow from uh, by unpacking some of the assumptions and the uh, biases around the content, clarifying some things that are maybe memories that may or may not be accurate, because, you know, they're always changing over time. Each time we think something, it's a whole new event, and it's never exactly the same as the previous time we thought it. So you can imagine having a, 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 a thought or a memory arise, you know, a hundred times is the last time you thought it exactly the same as the first time. No, usually not. Uh, it's a dynamic process. So we first need to really recognize the distinction between the content of the thoughts and the process. And though there can be some insight into, you know, basically why we react that way or what actually happened or who actually said what and what was going on. There can be some understanding that's important around the content. So we don't need to entirely ignore the content, but the main orientation of meditative investigation is to look at our relationship to thinking and what are the underlying forces that keep fueling that thought. So it's not about this particular memory or this particular plan or this particular fantasy. That, in that sense, the content doesn't so much matter. We're looking much more at what is the activity of remembering, of planning, and of ruminating, and of worrying, and of, of judging. What is that action? How is that functioning? How is it being fed and fueled and continued in our lives? And what would be an intervention that would uh, allow that, that harmful pattern to cease? Coming up, Shyla Catherine discusses how to replace unwholesome thoughts, the difference between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts, and much more right after this. If you're enjoying the episode please take a moment and leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a small thing, but helps spread a bit of much-needed wisdom in the world. Also, if you're interested in a dose of daily wisdom right to your inbox, I encourage you to subscribe to our Perennial Meditations newsletter at perennial.substack.com. This will ensure you get episodes of the Perennial Meditations podcast every Sunday and Friday, along with short articles and reminders on timeless principles and practices to help us all live our highest good. The large majority of the content is free, but there's also an option to become a paid subscriber which is around $3 a month if done annually. And this includes some additional benefits as well. But more importantly, it helps keep the podcast ad-free. And it is deeply appreciated. 
Now, back to the show. That's so helpful. Um, I'm excited to get into to these five strategies here. Uh, and I've, I've got a few maybe what-if questions on, on applying these as we go through. But uh, let's start with a strategy one. You, you write it's replace unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts. Well, first, one has to be able to discern the difference between a wholesome and an unwholesome. So what we've talked about previously all must apply. Somebody first needs to be able to distinguish a thought different than like what is mental from what is physical so that we're not orienting to what if, if there's blame in the mind, we're not orienting to what somebody said to us last week and got us angry. We're experiencing the thought arising in the present moment as a mental activity and recognizing that it is rooted in anger, as an example. So then when we're angry and we keep thinking about that person, they said this, I'm going to say that. If they say this, if I see them again, I'm going to react this way. We can feel that we're, we're getting kind of hot and bothered about this. And we, there's a lot of clues to tell us there is anger present. So do we want to work with mindfulness of anger? We can. Do we want to work with mindfulness of the thought? We can. Of thinking? We can. But actually what's happening is both of them are feeding each other. So for the, for the pattern of, uh, for the first strategy of replacing, we can recognize, you know, this is unwholesome. I could keep thinking about this for the next day, for the next week, for the next year, and you know, it's not very helpful. So is there an alternative? And anything that's occurring within our own minds, I guarantee you there is an alternative. Because it's occurring within our own minds. <laughs> we can think of something else. We always have an alternative. We are never stuck. We never have only one option. And so no matter how strong the habit is or what nasty thing the other person said, or even if we are sure that anyone would be suffering the same way we are if they experienced it, nevertheless, we are not stuck. So this first step of being able to replace one thought with another, it develops the flexibility and it reminds us it's just a thought that's arising in the present moment and it also can change. It does change. It's definitely not fixed. So it's really important to be able to recognize that these thoughts are discrete mental events and we can change from one to the other. So it's not about now being attached to a positive thought. It's about realizing we are not stuck in the negative thoughts. And we don't have to be caught by that, that pattern of thinking. So I wouldn't suggest choosing a second negative thought. That would just be foolish. Some people have done that. I've known some people who have, oh, for example, been very angry. Oh, no, sorry, been very sleepy. And to overcome the sleep, they stimulate angry thoughts because it brings up energy. And now they have two hindrances. They have the dullness of mind from the sleep and the anger. So it's not a good idea. The Buddha only suggested replacing with something wholesome. So if somebody said something to us that was really nasty, we could have a more compassionate thought, for example. Like, you know, maybe they were um, something difficult happened for them. Maybe they were grieving. Maybe they had a loss. Maybe they uh, were, were, were in pain. Often when people get angry, it's because they're actually in physical pain or hungry. <laughs> you know, there's lots of reasons that, that somebody, has a, somebody says something that they later regret. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's not always intentional. So we, but we can think, uh, uh, we can have a thought that's compassionate. We could have a thought that just tries to focus maybe on a quality that we appreciate them so that every time we see them, we don't always get triggered by the nasty thing they said. We can also get triggered by some kind action or some nice thing that we've seen or know about them at some point because people are complicated. But we do tend to, as human beings, focus on the negative. One little thing and we'll forget 50 good things. So we train ourselves, and this, this is just a very simple act of just realizing 
uh, we don't have to get caught in it, and we develop the flexibility to shift to some other thought. I find this particular strategy just inspiring the agency and and freedom that we we have here. And I made a note, and I want to ask, and you kind of touched on it a bit there, of I, I think of in this strategy, I think of something that Mon- the philosopher Montaigne supposedly said to himself all the time is like, what do I know? And you kind of alluded to it there. Of, and I think of that as maybe a neutral. If we're feeling a certain way and getting these thoughts over something that maybe someone else has done or or judgments, maybe the, the wholesome compassion replacement could be a bit of a leap for, for some of us but maybe a neutral of, I don't know how their day has been. I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. Some sort of neutral is, you know, could that be replacing it with a wholesome, some sort of, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know the whole story. I think that's a very wholesome thought because it's a wise yeah. thought. And wisdom is extremely wholesome. You know, really, what do mm. we know? What do we know? Yeah. It's an especially. It's one that I would use especially if I found that the mind was reinforcing kind of a, a, a an attachment to a view or an opinion, and I keep going mm. over in my mind as to why I'm right. I don't know if that happens to anybody else, but sometimes <laughs> we have an opinion and the person didn't you know didn't agree with us immediately, and we keep going over and over. But maybe there's something we're not seeing. But what do we know? Mm. It's, it's just an opinion from this perspective. So I think that's related to this, this idea. And I think a neutral, a neutral thought is a, is a very wholesome thought. Mm. Another thought is to just orient ourselves more to mindfulness. So instead of getting caught in the story, we might ask a question, can I be present with this? You know, can I just meet this with calmness? Can I consider this? So instead of moving into the reaction, we're inviting a, a question or a thought that brings us into a, a, an observing, a, a mindful, a contemplative, a, a reflective mode that actually can help us meet the situation. And that also gets us out of the habitual pattern. Let me ask a question around, it seems like strategy one, and I've been playing with these strategies over the last month or so since I picked up your book. It seems like strategy one can be very effective, probably for for most of us right there. But then that particular unwholesome thought, maybe one or two days later, could come up again and you apply strategy one and it's it's effective, and you move on, and, and maybe there's this pattern of, of similar unwholesome thoughts. Do you move on to, to strategy two at some point, to which is examine the dangers of distracted thoughts? I think you're quite correct that I, I, most thoughts will be addressed, first of all, just by recognizing that it's a thought, and then... The second most thoughts will probably be directed by just replacing it. And just when you replace it, you've taken a lot of the, um, the energy out, and now you're occupied by something else. And you do that several times, and you kind of move on in life <laughs> for <laughs> most thoughts. So I kind of see it like a, a pyramid where, the, the, in terms of how many thoughts, they, you, each strategy, if you go through the cycle, the system... It, you go. You need to go through the strategies with less and less thoughts. It's like filtering just those few that are either deeply conditioned or particularly strong and toxic. Uh, there's just a few that really need to go all the way through the five strategies. Most will be dealt with with the first. This, uh, another layer will be developed with the first and the second, then the first, second, and third, like that. But there does come a time when after you've replaced the same thought a whole bunch of times, and it starts to feel like a, 
just an exercise, you know, replacing it, you realize there's something more that's going on there that needs to be seen, that this exercise isn't actually enough for this particular pattern. And, and, some, and there can be a, an advantage, a benefit to contemplating the danger in those thoughts. And this isn't to scare us, <laughs> and it isn't to judge us. Oh, look what a stupid thing you're doing. Um, it, it's to orient our attention to recognize, hold it. We're doing something that is actively taking, taking us in a direction we do not want to go. Mm. And so we, we contemplate, where is this leading what is it costing me? What am I trading for it? What are the consequences going to be? There are so many times in our lives when if we just had the wherewithal to pause and to ask, what are the consequences of pursuing this, this anger, this desire, this revenge fantasy, <laughs> this lust fantasy, what are the consequences likely to be? We could possibly have saved ourselves and others a tremendous amount of suffering. And so this asks us to pause for a moment and to say, you know, what are the costs? Where is this leading? Is this supporting, awakening our liberation, the values that we hold? Or is it corrupting the, the most important things in our lives. Mm. And so there are lots of ways of seeing the danger. Uh, but I do think it's important, again, as thinking human beings <laughs> who mm. can use the mind wisely to reflect, where is this leading? Do I want to go there? Mm. The, um, the, one of the images in the Buddhist teachings is of the fisherman who throws a baited hook into the lake and a fish um, might come, there's one fish might come along and um, only see the bait and not the hook and then clamp down its, its bite down on it and then of course it's, um, you know, it's caught by the fisherman, <laughs> totally caught because it saw just the thing that it wanted and didn't see the danger behind it. But another fish might come along, and, and I don't know what a fish thinks, but some fish actually don't get caught by the hooks. Some fish get to be big fishes. And in some lakes, fishermen know the big fishes because they see them around and they nibble the bait, but they don't bite down on the hook. And that kind of an image um, is, is, is nice, I think, to remember. Though we might be lured into a particular pattern, a particular habit, we, we, can, we can see the hook behind it. We can see what the danger is. And a wise fish would swim in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Applying this strategy in daily life, I, I'm thinking of, of the person that is busy, hectic day, Packed with packed with meetings, and they're they're at this strategy too. You know, how much time are you spending there before moving to strategy three, which is avoid it, ignore it, forget it? To me, two and three happen very can, are very related because just as I said, the fish, a wise fish, would swim away, <laughs> would <laughs> withdraw from the danger. A wise mind will say, I don't want to go there, and would take another mm. path. So would pull away from that habit. Um, if a thought is deeply entangled with emotion, then it sometimes takes a few minutes for the body to process the chemicals that we've been involved with. So some thoughts pass immediately, and it's, they're really gone. And some, we might need to take a few deep breaths <laughs> to really shift gears, step outside, clear our head, take a breath of fresh air, and then come in. But that doesn't have so much to do with the thoughts. I think that has to do with just the way that we 
process emotions. I, I don't know all the chemistry of the body, but I do feel like something physically has to settle if we've been really involved in a hot, toxic, uh, angry scenario or a lustful whatever, you know, something really strong, you know, but those little thoughts, the ones that are just a little bit arrogant or a little bit conceited or just a little bit this or a little bit that, um, they pass very quickly. Um, and if they totally pass, no problem. But sometimes we do feel like we need to not just realize, ooh, the danger. We need to realize the danger and then withdraw the fuel from it. And this next step, and, and the reflection on the danger to me is just the simple question where is this going? You know, if I indulge this, if I let this pattern dominate my life, what is it costing me? In my time, in the clarity of my mind, in my ability to pursue my goals, in my relationships, in my family. Um, in my spiritual life, in my capacity to experience peace of mind in my meditation, what is it costing? And so, um, to me, that takes, I don't know, four, five, six seconds, seven seconds, ten mm. seconds. A minute would be a long time. A minute would be a really long time. Because to mm. me, usually the danger is obvious if I bother to ask yeah. the question. So just to be generous, I'll say give yourself a minute. I appreciate you getting specific there, Shiloh. I, I could imagine uh, myself and maybe listeners thinking about, you know, maybe five minutes or, or something like that, kicking around that particular strategy. So that's, that's really helpful. Just to respond to that, it is possible you might need two minutes <laughs> um, if you want to investigate another aspect which relates to this. And that's that... Um, sometimes we're not seeing the hook because we're so enchanted with the bait. And mm. it's worth asking ourselves the question, what am I getting out of this pattern? You know, what am I, um, what's the gratification here? Is there an assumed reward? Because if we are strongly attached to whatever that reward is, and therefore are not seeing the danger then we, that, that kind of an investigation can go very deep and it might need two or three minutes maybe to see how we're deluded and deluded by the gratification. And that's yeah. not uncommon. Like many people indulge anger because they feel so much energy around the self in it. What I feel strong. And there's a, an appeal for some people in a worldly way, to feel that kind of power. So we have to realize, whoa, there's an, a real attraction to that power, but this kind of thought, where is it leading? And we mm. realize that it's going to prevent concentration, it's going to prevent clarity, it's going to prevent anything that is of value in the spiritual life. It's going to prevent the clear seeing, which will allow us to actually solve the problem that is irritating us in the first place. Because we're locked in to my view of it. So there are many reasons to look at even something where we feel like we're getting something out of it that we like to realize, no, this is not worth the price. Does that get into strategy four of in investigating the causes of distraction? It's related but I think of the first, first we see the danger and that creates a kind of dispassion to not want to go there anymore. So we don't need to go too deep in the investigation of understanding all of the nuances, but we do need to see it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And that inspires us to want to let it go, to want to set it aside. And maybe to have to set it aside several times. Each time it arises, no, I don't want to go there. Set it aside. And then we start to realize, well, maybe there's some way that even just attending to it, even just thinking about it at all is giving it fuel. So that reinforces the with. The, the, the ignoring it, the, the, the setting, the putting it away, and which is really important for things like grudges. I mean, mm. people can bear a grudge for a long, long, long time. 
it's not hurting the person they have a grudge about, but it's certainly hurting their own lives and their own capacity to have um, uh, genuine, deep, intimate relationships again. So there can be this, um, uh, this, this, this need to be able to say, um, no, it, that was, that, that's past. It was a terrible experience. I am right. <laughs> but nevertheless, this isn't worth my time anymore. I'm going to move on. And we mm-hmm. just let it be passed, we let it go, and we move on. So that has a lot to do with the avoid it, ignore it, and forget it strategy of strategy three. But now you're saying, okay, once we've gotten that far, if a thought persists, if it keeps coming up, and we're not able to just let it go, then we need to look even deeper. We need to investigate the causes for those thoughts. We need to to understand the uh, the the way that the mind is entangled by it, not just the the gratification that arises with it and how attractive it, that reward appears, not just the danger, but what is the whole movement of mind that is reaching for it? Where is um, you know why do I keep biting down on the hook? even after I see the hook. And uh, that's a very frustrating place for many people when they already see the danger of it and then they watch their mind doing it anyway. Or even sometimes where they, where stra- they try strategy three to, to let it go, to step away, to withdraw the fuel, and their mind is just pulled back again. So these mm-hmm. strategies, each one works for a bulk of our thoughts, but some of our thoughts are just so deeply conditioned or so entangled with other emotions that we just need to keep pursuing these and applying another strategy. So investigating the causes of the distraction is the important fourth step. But most of our thoughts do not need deep investigation. They really don't. Mm. We don't need to add more thoughts on top of other thoughts just to, um, to see what the mind is doing. Most of the time, we, we, we get it. We understand things fairly. They're, they're repeated. Our patterns are, are very few of them really need, do we need to, to drill down to the, to the deepest layers of attachment. But everybody that I know has a few we need to de- drill down to the deepest layers and see what's going on. So we look and see, okay, so what is the thought? We can ask ourselves questions about it. We can explore, is this true? Do I know if it's true? Do I have the information? Um, how much of it, uh, how, what feelings arise with it? What emotions are, are related to it? How does the thought and the emotion feed each other? Are we more entangled in the emotion or the thought? And then we can start to see that a thought is not one thing, but actually a thought and emotion, they, they, they trigger other thoughts and emotions. So we're never dealing with one static state. Even if I say anger, well, sometimes there's annoyance and sometimes there's fear and sometimes there's, there's um, uh, uh, insecurity or there's uh, wanting of something. Um, all like moment by moment changing in this scenario that the mind is playing out with the thoughts. So we need to tease it apart and see the emotional components and see the whether it's pleasant or unpleasant and see where the mind is reaching for something or pushing away from something and to just start to really understand how, the, how thoughts and emotions, how the mind is working in that moment. And, and, and when we find that we keep asking and these questions and drilling down to realize, well, what are the seeds of that thought? Why did it arise there? And why did, why was there, why did it, you know, become significant? You know, uh, get inflamed? Why didn't it disappear when I said, with the previous strategy, you know, vamos, go away, thoughts. <laughs> you know, with just replace it. I'm going to replace it with this. The mind didn't comply. Maybe for a little while it replaced it with a, a wholesome one, but it sort of veered back. So we need to look at the conditioning. 
And so mm. we, it's not so much about that particular thought or that particular scenario. We're now looking at, at our own relationship to thoughts and emotions. And very often we come to the, to the deep understanding that in an unmindful relationship to any experience, we fuel a particular view of self, a personality view. And we continue to assert through the stories that we devise a sense of self in the world. And it's not, it's not a bad thing to be social beings. We present a particular self. I distinguish myself from you. We're, I don't confuse the two. I don't like wonder you know, who I am today and which, what responsibilities do I have or, or which family do I go home to in the evening. Or there's no confusion in terms of a, of a social functioning. But how attached are we to a fixed concept of self? Because if we're, particu- if we're attached to a particular concept of self, then we will find that many thoughts, in fact, if not most or maybe even all thoughts <laughs> that are unwholesome at least, are in some way or another trying to um, uh, strengthen, affirm, assert, defend, validate this particular view of self. And yet it's just constructed within my own mind. My particular personality view, my view of self, is something within my own mind. It's not something that exists as a fixed entity in the world. And yet many of the thoughts that I have might be trying to create this sense of self again and again and uh, uh, assert it in the world. Mm-hmm. Hence, we often live lost in our story of experience instead of being mindful of the experience that is arising. And then we re- respond to the experience that's occurring in terms of personal advantage and disadvantage because if we if we're lost in the delusion that puts self in the center of everything, then it's it's a it's not it's common to move towards desire and aversion. But if we question the centrality of the story of self and begin to see it as just a story, just a sequence of thoughts in our minds, not a fixed real entity. Nothing that needs to be defended. Then we'll be able to respond to present experience, informed by mindfulness, informed by wisdom. In, pa- in fact, in the in the Buddhist teachings and the discourses of the Buddha, there are many places where he suggests that one um, sees experience, experiences of the body, feelings, perceptions, the mind. Uh, consciousness, to see it with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And this particular line is repeated many times. So I have um, a strong confidence that the Buddha really did teach people, teach practitioners, to as we're experiencing our life, and we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and even the thoughts within our own minds, that we're meeting our experiences, our perceptions, our our knowing of whatever's happening with the wisdom that knows, that understands, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And I feel like this investigation of the causes brings us eventually, after we've unpacked the ways that we perceive things and what emotions it triggers and what thoughts it leads to and whether they're true or not on that surface, it brings us down to the basic orientation to perception. Are we seeing with wisdom that knows this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself? Or are we seeing with delusion? You know, I am right, you know, that kind of a, this is me, see me like this. And when we, when we look at, when we do that examination, 
then we have a whole other level of motivation uh, to, be, uh, to release those thoughts. Because at this point, we're seeing them as conditioned thoughts, not reality. Mm-hmm. So there's no motivation to reinforce them. And we've investigated them, so we just see, wow, this delusion goes deep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the sting and self-judgment falls away because we see this is just this is just the deluded. And when I say deluded, I don't mean like, oh, a horrible person. I just mean somebody who is not seeing with wisdom. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody who the, with the, that wisdom is not arising in that moment. And so our perception is distorted. And then by the investigation, we're bringing in a clarity of perception. So we're seeing it more clearly. And we're no longer caught in the story. I'm curious for you to speak about the wisdom of contemplation and maybe differentiate contemplation from meditation and I guess anything that you have to say on the wisdom of contemplation, I guess is the question. (laughs) I I do think different uh, meditative traditions and different traditions or approaches to the spiritual life of various kinds will interpret contemplation differently. We find the term contemplation in the Buddhist, in the translations, the English translations of the Buddhist suttas. In, 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 in particular, one contemplates experience as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. And I think it's an interesting use of the term contemplation because these are the three primary insights that free the mind, that abandon the forces of delusion and allow one to realize Nibbana as one moves through what's called the doorway of insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or not-self. And yet these are called contemplations. So how, do, how does that happen? Well, with a steady mind, with a calm mind, we'll be able to perceive some experience. Say we'll be uh, feeling a, an unpleasant sensation, maybe like a, a tingling or a, a pressure, just as an example. And as we bring our attention to that feeling or that sensation and feeling of pressure that's unpleasant, we'll notice that the sensation and the feeling are changing. They appear and they disappear. Our perception of it comes and goes. Perception isn't steady. There are various, uh, we, we, we perceive something and then for a moment we don't perceive it, but then we perceive it again and again and again and again. And we inter- the mind interprets and n- interprets what the experience is through that accumulation of moments of conscious experience. And so as we're experiencing it, we can observe that moment occurring and then the absence of that knowing, and then that knowing occurring and the absence of it. So we can actually perceive the impermanence of things. But it's another layer of experience to recognize and contemplate This is impermanent. What is impermanent can't be the basis for my lasting happiness. What is impermanent and is not the basis of my lasting happiness really can't be self, me. It just, the logic of it breaks down. The, 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 The illusion of it breaks down because we're seeing the impermanence of it. So it may be what we're really knowing is this moment, a momentary experience of something being known and then disappearing. It's impermanent. But we're contemplating that phenomena in such a way that it leads to these insights. You know, that it's empty of self. If it's changing all the time, where do we find the self? Is it in the experience, between the experience? I mean, we can't find it anywhere. 
So it's through the contemplation that we realize the implications of the insight into impermanence, which produces the insight into um, not-self or unsatisfactoriness. And those, all three of those insights uh, have the result of removing the attachment to experiences, that um, enchantment, that desire to crave them or become someone through experience. So uh, the terms that are usually used is a disenchantment, dispassion, and the cessation of becoming. And all of it's, basically all of it is, is, is making a shift in the mind from a tendency to be attached in our orientation experience to the tendency to not cling. Hmm. And so the, the aspects of, of, of direct seeing, mindfulness, uh, and um, insight, and the contemplation of the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self of experience, and I give great emphasis to the impermanence, result in this realization, you know, we just can't cling to this. We just can't hmm. cling. And when we're not clinging, we're not creating further causes for distortion and delusion. So that release, that non-clinging, leads, can lead to the profound letting go that ultimately would, in the Buddhist tradition, would be called the realization of Nibbana. Um, but it, that, that's not every experience we let go is not the realization of Nibbana. <laughs> but it's, it's that, it, it's, it's the... The contemplation leads to this recognition of, of when are we clinging and how do we not not cling. And it isn't just, oh, I see this is a problem and I let this go. And then for every single experience, we cling to it so that we can let it go. We cling to it and then have to let it go. The contemplation understands the significance. So that although we've seen this directly with our, our clear, mindful attention, this is impermanent, cannot be clung to, we're able to extrapolate and not cling to anything in this world. Hmm. Otherwise, it would be an endless project. Every single sight, every single smell, every single taste, again and again, all fresh, all new, we would have to see the attachment, unpack its causes, and then let it go, only to suffer again in the next moment when we're clinging again so that we could investigate it and let it go. Now, our practice involves going through this process again and again and again. But my goodness, we have to learn something. We have to see the implications. We have to get fed up with always clinging and that, that perpetual, that, that continuous pattern of attachment and I think it's the contemplating of these qualities and, and contemplating the, the, the unsatisfactoriness of this attachment that really lets, allows the letting go to be so pervasive that liberation is possible. I love it. And, and maybe getting fed up is a good transition to strategy five after someone has, has been through those first four strategies and still having having issues strategy five is apply determination and resolve what does that look like shyla exactly i love this one <laughs> but i do think i do think this one which is basically saying no and meaning it not saying no and then well maybe maybe just a little while longer or maybe someday I'll let go of that. It's, as you said, got, get, getting fed up enough and having the wisdom that has seen how this happening so that we're recognizing that this is a conditioned pattern. So it's not a no that is of anger and hate and self-hatred or self-condemnation or aversion. None of, no negativity is arising. This is just the clear no of wisdom. That just says no, no more. And it's said with resolve, it's said with wisdom. It doesn't have to be said out loud, but there's a mental recognition that says 
no more to this pattern. No more. And we can do that because we've already developed all the previous steps. We've developed the recognition that we can replace it so we know we're not fixed in it. We've seen the dangers and know we don't want to go there. We know that we can withdraw the fuel by by, by pulling away from that, not get continually getting caught in the orbit of that pattern. And we've understood the causes that are very sometimes very subtle and deep, often this subtle sense of an insecurity of self or the reinforcement of that story of who I am that so many thoughts are trying to, to bolster or, or, um, or defend. And to then we just say, no more. That one I'm done with. You know, no more. And mm. it's amazing how when we can actually say no without any aversion in the mind, when the wisdom is that strong, it usually really works. Maybe we have to say no a couple of times, but it's a very powerful statement to set a boundary around an activity of mind that we will no longer do. And I think it's it's very much like making a, a kind of a, an ethical commitment, like people have their code of conduct where there's mm. a line they won't cross around an activity. And they've made it. They've made a decision. You know, I won't. I won't do that. You know, we have this at these ethics in our activities, uh, but mental activity is still an activity. And this is the opportunity to be very clear about where we set our ethical line around unwholesome thought patterns. Where we say, no, I'm not going to cross that. And it's, it's, it has to be done out of wisdom, not aversion. And it also can't be the primary strategy. Usually by the time you've gotten there, I don't know, almost every thought will have been resolved, thought pattern will have been resolved with the lighter options. This one is a strong one. You know, that resolve can be very strong. So, uh, but, but we need to sometimes apply our determination to the to 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 particularly sticky thought patterns, but it works when it's based on wisdom. It backfires if there's aversion, especially uh, like guilt that we have that kind of a thought still. Oh, we're such spiritual people, but we're still having that nasty thought, and and then there's kind of a self condemnation. It won't it won't work then, because mm. it's not really a clear no. Well, this has been so good, Shiloh. I'm grateful that you that you came on. Where do you point uh, listeners that are interested in in learning more about you and, and some of your previous work? Well, I do want to encourage listeners to work with their own minds. Certainly not mm-hmm. just to accumulate knowledge, but to actually understand all the, the thought patterns. And I do feel that the that the, um, these strategies are very practical and can be used in daily life. So my book um, includes many different um, applications in relationships, in work, and in activities, though the orientation is primarily for people who have some familiarity with meditation and mindfulness, because that was where these, these techniques were derived from, from, for a meditator who wants to develop their mind. How do they deal with thoughts? So I think it's perfect, this, this book that I wrote, um, Beyond Distraction, Five Practical Ways to Focus the Mind, is very appropriate for anybody who's meditating, from beginners to the, the you know, very seasoned practitioners of, of probably any kind of tradition. I think somebody who's not meditating can also benefit from the book uh, because we're all, we all think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we all know that some of our thoughts are not very helpful in our lives. So I do feel like it could be useful for non-meditators as well as meditators, so long as you recognize that that orientation uh, was for somebody who sits down to calm their mind and finds that there's a little restlessness there instead of calm. (laughs) 
and then what do you do with it? <laughs> so it gives you a few a few techniques to develop. So what I okay. recommend for people is to um, I encourage mindfulness meditation practice of whatever length works in your life, and there are many ways to learn mindfulness meditation. If you're already engaged in other meditation practices, most meditation practices are good. So you can find you can find ways to um, apply these strategies in the context of virtually any kind of, of, of meditation practice. So I recommend my book. Um, and I also um, teach online retreat online courses. Um, and I do have a course on this theme beyond distraction. That's um coming up this fall, and I will re-offer it periodically every year or two, which is a for a while, and as long as there's some interest. And it's a wonderful course that's filled with many more um, uh, guided meditations and lectures and themes. And the publisher of the book, um, Wisdom Publications, is also putting together a um, online course that will be available for people. So there's there's different ways that you can walk through the book with the with supporting material. My websites to find out information are um, I have three websites. Uh, the first one is shylacatherine.com. That's probably the easiest one to find, and and there you'll find lots of links to different lectures that are freely available and and information about some of the highlights of some of the events that are highlights coming up and my online courses are mostly offered through bodhicourses.org which is an online platform that i founded probably in 2014 to offer online classes in meditation and concentration and then i have a local meditation group in silicon valley california called insight meditation south bay and I offer local events, and there's also um, some online programs that are in the basically oriented towards the Pacific time zone, uh, but probably anywhere on the continent um, there they they work for. Mm. So hopefully your listeners, if they're interested, will follow up with something. And I do hope that I, I enjoyed the conversation. Your questions, I think, really got to the heart of this as a practical method. And I hope that it will be of use to your to your listeners. And I wish you all very, um, very much happiness, peace, tranquility, mm-hmm. ease, and wisdom. Well, thank you so much. I do as well. And I highly recommend the book. I'll link everything mentioned in the show notes. Shyla Catherine, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.